choir. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. We will uh, be reading the entire chapter this morning as we continue our study through this book, Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. What is the longest war in history? The longest war in history, according to scholars, was the Reconquista, which means a Spanish word that means reconquest. The Reconquista was a, a war that took place on the Iberian Peninsula between 711 A.D. and 1492 A.D. So it's a war that lasted 781 years. Imagine that, 700-year war. That's a long war. There's actually another war that's lasted much longer than that. It's a war that's lasted thousands and thousands of years. And it's a war that in this life will never end. 
That war started all the way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. You might remember that God said these words to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity or hatred or war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This is the war between God and Satan. This is the war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. This is the war between the church and the world. And until Jesus Christ returns, this war will rage on and it will never end until Christ comes back. One person who understood the reality of spiritual warfare was a man named Martin Luther. Many of you have heard that name before. Martin Luther was a a great person in the 16th century Protestant Reformation. and, And Luther thought often about the devil. The story is told that that one night, um, Luther was trying to sleep. Luther was laying on his bed, trying to get some sleep, and he was woken up from his sleep by the devil, who was there to torment Luther. And so Luther got up out of his bed, grabbed the inkwell off of his desk, and threw the inkwell at the devil. Now, whether or not that really happened, we don't know. But we do know that Luther understood that we are in a very real spiritual war. And and Luther knew that the devil would do everything he could, everything in his power to stop the progress of the gospel and to defeat the purposes of the church. This is a reminder to us that that what we saw today and, and last Sunday and also a few weeks ago Seven young people standing up here and and publicly professing that they love Jesus and that they want to live their life for him. It's a reminder to us the devil hates that. He despises that. Parents, he hates it when your children profess their faith in Christ. He hates it when we gather together like this to sing praises to him. He hates it when the good news of the gospel is proclaimed. And he will do anything in his power to fight against that. Revelation 12 this morning is a reminder to us that this should not surprise us. We should not be surprised at this spiritual war. We want to look at this passage this morning in three parts. Uh, First of all, there are the participants. And then there is the victory. And then there is the preservation. The participants, the victory, and the preservation. There are two main participants in this passage, a woman and a dragon. Now, first of all, it's important to remember one of the things we've been talking about throughout Revelation is that Revelation is filled with symbolic language. And and therefore, often, Revelation is not to be taken literally. It's to be interpreted as the kind of literature it is, which is symbolic. We, we see that, for instance, if you look at verse 1 and also verse 3, John says that a sign appeared in heaven. We all know what a sign is, right? I've, I've used this um, illustration before. I've given you the, the In-N-Out Burger illustration. You're on a road trip, driving somewhere in California, and, and you're driving down the road, and you're starting to get hungry, and, and you think to yourself, you know what, a um, double-double sounds pretty good right now. And so you start looking for In-N-Out Burger. You start looking for the sign. 
And eventually, somewhere on the freeway, you see that in and out sign. Now, children, that sign is not the restaurant, is it? You don't have to park your car and climb to the top of the in and out sign to get your burger. But that, that sign, that in and out sign, actually points to where the restaurant is. That's the purpose of a sign, to, to point to something else. John tells us here that the woman and the dragon are signs. In other words, we're not to take them literally. They are that which point to something else. Now notice, first of all, the woman. It says in verse 2 that she's clothed with the sun, she has the moon under her feet, and she's wearing a crown of 12 stars. Sun, moon, and stars. Is there anywhere you can go in the Bible that will help you explain and understand what the star or the sun and the moon and the stars are symbolic of? Actually, yes, there is. It's in the book of Genesis. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but many of you are familiar with this story. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph has a dream. Actually, has two dreams. And in his second dream, he sees the the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to him. Now you might remember that in that dream, the sun and the moon and the stars represented Joseph's family. They represented his father, his mother, and his brothers. And and in the Old Testament, in Genesis, Joseph's family represented all of the people of God. And so this woman who is clothed with the sun, moon, and stars represents the people of God. She represents the church. Now notice that verse 2 tells us also that this woman is pregnant, not just pregnant, but she's in labor. We'll talk about her pregnancy in a moment, but, but notice the second character, the dragon. He's described in a number of different ways. He's a, he's a great red dragon. Children, you can picture that in your mind. This terrifying red dragon. He has seven heads, ten horns. He has seven crowns on his head. And with his tail, he sweeps a third of the stars from heaven and he knocks them down to the earth. In the Bible, um, red is the color of blood and war and destruction. Horns and and crowns are symbols of, of power. And so what we're meant to see here is that this is a destructive, powerful, terrifying creature. And we don't have to guess who this is because verse 9 tells us this is the devil. This is Satan. And so the two main participants in this vision are the church and Satan. Now notice what we're told in the middle of verse 4. It says, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. It's a very vivid picture here, right? You can all kind of picture this in your mind. You've got this woman. She's pregnant. She's, she's in labor. She's just about to give birth. And, and standing right in front of her is this big, red, terrifying powerful dragon just waiting for this child to be born so he can kill it. I mean, how can people say the Bible is boring, right? I mean, you can really imagine this in your mind. And verse 5 tells us that this is a male child. This is one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so the first readers of the book of Revelation would have read chapter 12 of Revelation and immediately thought of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Psalm 2 is talking about the Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. And so you have this this graphic imagery here in Revelation 12. This woman's in labor. She's about to give birth. This, This great red dragon is waiting to destroy this child. And and brothers and sisters, this is here to tell us one important truth. And that is that Satan's chief aim was to prevent Jesus from coming into this world. That's what this is meant to tell us. And when you read your Old Testament with with this understanding, you can't miss it. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament, you you will see that that destroy Israel, destroy the line of promise so that the Messiah cannot come. It's all over the Old Testament. Cain killing Abel, the Tower of Babel, the worldwide flood, Israel's enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. Remember when we were in the book of Esther a few years ago, Haman tries to exterminate all of the Jews. All of that, behind the scenes, there is Satan trying to destroy the people of God, trying to destroy the line of promise so that your Savior cannot come. And there's one specific example in the Old Testament I want you to think about this morning. In the the 9th century B.C., there was a woman named Ataliah. Ataliah was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And children, if you know anything about Ahab and Jezebel, you know that they weren't good people. And Ataliah wasn't a whole lot different than mom and dad. She wasn't a good person. Ataliah wanted absolute power. She wanted to rule. And she waited for her son, King Ahaziah. She waited for him to die. And and then she decided she was going to kill the entire family line so that no one in Ahaziah's line would be left, so that no one could succeed Ahaziah. And Ataliah was going to do that so that once everyone else was killed, she alone would be there and she would get all the power. Now, now behind the scenes, something else was also going on. Ataliah is not just a story about wanting political power. Behind the scenes, Satan was working through Ataliah. Because you see, if, if Ataliah was successful in wiping out all of Ahaziah's family, not only will Ataliah get all the power that she wants, but she will also do Satan's bidding by wiping out the line of the Messiah. Because you see, interestingly, Ahaziah was from the line of Judah. And children, you might remember that God had said that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah. And so if Satan can get Ataliah to be successful, if she can wipe out all of the royal family, if she can destroy all of the descendants of Ahaziah, she will succeed. No tribe of Judah, no Messiah. 
And at first, it, it looks like, if you've ever read the story before, it looks like Atalia is successful. It looks like her plan worked. She, she kills the entire royal line of Ahaziah, at least she thinks she does. Unbeknownst to her, there is a little boy named Joash who has been hidden away so that he can't be killed. And so her plan to gain power and, and Satan's plan to destroy the tribe of Judah and destroy the line of promise, that whole plan is thwarted. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. Satan over and over and over tries to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world, but his plan never succeeds. But that's not the end of it. The, the dragon is still waiting there. The dragon still wants to kill that child. And when we come to the Gospels, when we come to the beginning of the Gospels, Satan is going to try to use a man named Herod to do this for him. And you remember what Herod does? He gives an order that, that all male children, two years and under, living in Bethlehem, are to be killed, to be put to death. And, and Herod thinks, one of those little boys has to be Jesus. And so if I can kill all of those little boys, I will be successful in killing Jesus. Now again, that, that wasn't just some political leader who's worried about his power. This is Satan trying to prevent Jesus from doing what Jesus came to do. But little does Herod know that when this massacre happens, Jesus is down in Egypt, safe. But then you go through the Gospels, and, and at the end of the Gospels, near the end of the Gospels, children, you remember what happens. The unthinkable happens. Jesus is, is nailed to a Roman cross, and on that Roman cross, he dies. Finally, after all of those years, starting in the book of Genesis, finally the dragon has succeeded. Now, now imagine being part of the church in that day. Imagine growing up and, and you've heard all your life from the Old Testament about how that line of promise was, was constantly in jeopardy, but that God always preserved that line of promise. And finally the Messiah had come, the one the church had been waiting for for all of those years had come. But now he's dead. How discouraged you would be. You would say, we, we thought he was the one. God, God, you preserved your line of promise all through the Old Testament and, and you preserved Jesus from Herod's massacre, but now he's dead. The one that we thought had come to redeem us from our sins is now dead and it looks like the dragon has won. It wasn't easy. There were a lot of bumps along the way, a lot of failures along the way, but now, finally... That child is dead. And his body is in the grave. And it appears God's promise has failed. But there's a second part to this passage, and that is the victory. Children, you know that the death of Jesus was not the end of the story. Two Sundays ago was Easter Sunday. Two Sundays ago, we we remembered and, and celebrated the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Satan didn't win the final victory. If you look at the middle of verse 5, it says, But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
Three days after Jesus was killed, he rose from the dead, and 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. That's what's being pictured here when it says the child is caught up to God. Children, where is Jesus? He's not in the grave. Jesus is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and we don't want to miss the significance of this. Being seated at someone's right hand is a symbolic of having power and and authority. Jesus is not a, a dead savior. Jesus is not a dead Messiah. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He rules and he reigns as the one who actually accomplished the work the Father gave him to do. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Revelation 12 is is good news for you this morning. You see, if you're a believer in Christ, you you don't read Revelation 12 as some outside third party observer. You don't read Revelation 12 if you're a Christian and and say, yeah, you know, that's pretty interesting. It's kind of interesting how, how God preserved his people in the Old Testament and how he preserved Jesus in his earthly ministry. It doesn't really involve me. I'm living 2,000 years later, but it's kind of interesting. If you're a Christian this morning, this story involves you. God kept his oldest promise, the promise to send the one who would save us from our sins. And despite the devil's best efforts, and despite all the wicked people he used throughout history, despite the constant efforts to prevent Jesus from coming and doing what God sent him to do, God's purpose could not fail. You think God's purpose in your life is gonna fail? Absolutely not. And, and Jesus came, and in his life, death, and resurrection, he did what God sent him to do. And, and brothers and sisters, think about this this morning. What did God send Jesus to do? What did Jesus accomplish when he hung on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago? When, when the devil thought that he had won, what did God accomplish? If you have your Bible, go for just a moment to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Again, if if we are believers, we we don't read Revelation 12 and and just say, that's an interesting story. We we read Revelation 12 and, and we see that this is our story. And then we think, what did Jesus accomplish when the devil thought that he had won? Well, look at Colossians 2 verse 13. Colossians 2:13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debts that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Paul says, on the cross, Jesus accomplished your forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus canceled. He wiped out your debt. And he triumphed over Satan. He triumphed over the kingdom of darkness. Look at one other place. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That just means Jesus took on human flesh. He became a man. So that, notice, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus took on flesh, he took on a truly human nature so that he might redeem us, so that he might destroy the devil and set us free from death. Most of you here this morning have have stood at the grave of a loved one. You've mourned over the death of a loved one. But we can be comforted this morning. We can be encouraged this morning that in the death of Jesus, Satan did not win. In the death of Jesus, he conquered death. For your believing loved ones, he conquered death for you. All of this makes Revelation 12 this wonderful reminder to us that God kept his promise. You know, a lot of people use... um, Websites like uh, Ancestry.com to to find out more about their family history, uh, to learn more about where their family comes from. Websites like that are very popular today. There's a sense in which Revelation 12 is our spiritual family history. Revelation 12 is like our spiritual Ancestry.com. All throughout the Old Testament, the devil wanted to destroy your family. Over and over and over, he wanted to wipe out your family so that Jesus couldn't save you. And there were times it looked really bleak. Egypt, Ataliah, Haman, Herod, times it looked really bleak. But the devil didn't succeed. Jesus came, and even though he was nailed to a cross where he would die, he didn't stay in the grave. He rose triumphantly for the forgiveness of your sins to free you forever from judgment and to deal Satan a great, great death blow. This is your spiritual history. This is what God did for us. Now, this doesn't mean the battle is over. This doesn't mean that that every trial and difficulty has gone away. This doesn't mean that there is not a spiritual war going on anymore. The war that was started back in Genesis 3 isn't finished yet entirely. And that's the third part of our passage, and that is the preservation. Uh, The devil's been defeated But he's not going down without a fight. He's he's like a chicken with its head cut off. 
He's still running around. In fact, Peter calls him a roaring lion. 1 Peter 5, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to what? To devour. There's that word devour, same word that's used here in Revelation 12. That the dragon was, was waiting before the woman. He was wanting to devour her child. But, but now that the child has come and now that he has been defeated, he wants to devour you. He wants to devour your children. He will use whatever means he can to try to accomplish that purpose. And so we're still in the middle of a battle. And this battle is going to last all the way from, really essentially from the the first coming of Christ to his second coming. That's what the, the 1,260 days refers to. All the time between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. What that means, and and this may not be the most encouraging words to you this morning, but what this means is that what will mark the history of the church is an ongoing battle, an ongoing war. It will continue on, and whether it's through false teaching or through persecution, Satan will continue to seek our destruction. Now you might say that's pretty discouraging. You mean to tell me that I'm going to face this battle all the days of my life? Yes, you are. So am I. But I want you to notice two things in this chapter this morning that should encourage us. Yes, we're in the middle of a fight. Yes, we're in the middle of a battle. But there are two things in this chapter that should give us strength for the battle. And the first one is this. Satan has no case to make against you. He's got no case to make against you. If you look at verse 7, you'll notice that this war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels on one side. Satan and his angels on the other side. Satan is defeated. Satan and his angels are thrown down to the earth. Very simply, this is a symbolic description of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. He defeated Satan and his kingdom. But even though Satan is a defeated foe, like the chicken with its head cut off, he continues to roam. He continues to prowl, looking for those he may devour. The end of verse 10 even says, he accuses them day and night before our God. We have a a powerful spiritual enemy who is constantly accusing us. Constantly. God, how can you save people like that? You know their sin. You, you, know, you know what those people at Zion are really like. You, notice, you know their struggles and their, and their faults and their sin. You really want people like that in your kingdom, God? And what hope do we have? We, we know our sin. We know who we are. What's the very next verse say? Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. The hope we have is Jesus Christ. You you remember what we sing in, in the song before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. We look to Jesus. 
We, we look to God's gospel promises, and it's through that that we conquer the devil and his accusations. Martin Luther used to tell the story about having a dream where he was, he was mocked by the devil. I, I told you Luther thought about the devil a lot. And he had this dream where he was being mocked by Satan. And the devil came to him and said, Martin, Martin, just think of all the evil that you have done. Martin, just think of your, your countless sins that you have committed. Do you really think, Martin, that you're going to escape God's judgment? And, and Luther, typical Luther, said, Satan, you're right. It's all true. And, and there, are, there are many more sins that I have committed that only God knows about. But Satan, don't forget this. Don't forget to write this at the bottom of the list of all of my sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Luther's point was not that I've been so good, Satan, and so God's going to accept me. Luther's point is that the blood of Jesus, the work of Christ, is so powerful, it cleanses even the filthiest of our sins. And, and Christian, because of Jesus, Satan has no case against you. Because of Jesus, your sins have been washed away. Because of Jesus, the threat of judgment has been removed. Because of Jesus, Satan and, and death hold no power over you. Yes, the battle goes on. Yes, the war rages on. And you won't be free from it in this life. But never forget, Satan's got no case against you. He's got no case he can make. Jesus has set you free. And the second thing we see here to be encouraged with this morning is that Satan cannot defeat the church. Look at verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Satan is, is using his mouth to try to destroy the church, to, to try to destroy God's people. Now we'll look at this in greater detail in the next chapter, but what this is telling us is that one of the, one of the weapons that Satan uses in his war against the church is false teaching. False gospels, false understanding of the word of God. Verse 16 tells us that God will preserve his people. It says the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. What that means is that all of the, all of the false ideologies that this world attempts to to use to deceive the church will ultimately fail. They'll have no effect. The true people of God, the true believer, will not be fooled. And so chapter 12 is a, an interesting chapter. It's a, it's a graphic chapter. It's a chapter that, that is a great reminder to us that we are in a war. Annika and Joel professed their faith in Christ this morning. And, and as I said to them up here, this is just the beginning. For as long as the Lord allows them to live all the days of their lives and all the days of our lives, we will face this war. It's, it's real. It's true. We are in a battle. 
But we do not want to be discouraged because Revelation 12 is a reminder to us that that God is not only a promise-making God, but he is a promise-keeping God. A lot of us make promises and don't keep them. That's never true with God. God always does what he says he will do, and all through the Old Testament and into the Gospels, even with Satan's best attempts, God kept his promise. And if he kept that promise, Christian, what promise will he not keep to you? And secondly, we can be encouraged this morning because not only does God keep his promises, but secondly, we we just saw Satan has no case against us. He can accuse all he wants, but it doesn't matter because Christ has conquered. Christ has won the victory. And third, we can be encouraged to know that the church of Jesus Christ will continue to march on. And Satan and his demons and his human instruments and his persecuting governments and his false teachers will not overcome us. He will preserve us to the very end. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for not only the reminder of the reality of a spiritual battle, but more importantly, thank you for the reminder of what Christ has done for us, that he has conquered sin, death, Satan, and hell. And we thank you that we are secure in your love. Help us, Lord, to be the church. Help us to be your people in this world. Help us to proclaim the glorious good news that Jesus Christ saves. Give us the strength to do that, we pray in Jesus' name.